I'm Toby Kincaid. Let's be honest. Big oil runs the world. We're in the middle of an energy crisis, a worldwide global crisis that really affects us in three major ways. We have an economic crisis. Because the whole world is paying fuel costs, it's uh, a big burden. You know, at $30 a barrel, uh, that's north of $100 million an hour. That world economies are bled for the basic energy that we need for everything we do. Manufacturing, transportation, communications, everything requires energy. And at the moment, everything we do is based on fossil fuel energy. Well, we have an economic price that we pay for this. But the second large price we pay for the energy we use, if it's fossil fuel based, is toxicity. You know, we are dumping tremendous amounts of toxins into the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the soils that grow our foods. We have these major toxic time bombs that have been brewing in our very infrastructure, the leaking gasoline stations, the gas stations all over the country, 120,000 of them. This is constantly producing an environment of volatile organic compounds that are saturating our soils and our air that we breathe. So we have these tremendous implications with the toxicity of the nature of our civilization. But the third crisis in our energy crisis triad is a crisis of conscience. You know, we, there's something in human nature when we're close to a problem, we have this ability to turn off the fear because as a practical matter, you know, being afraid is very useful, but you can't just freeze up and stay afraid. You have to act. And we have this instinct built into us. And it's a, it sometimes serves us very well, and other times it may not. And, you know, it reminds me of a very famous study where they interviewed three villages that, that live under a, a dam. Now, one lives directly underneath, the next village is, you know, several miles downstream, and then a third village furthest away. And so they, they went to the villages, and they started with the furthest away, and they'd come up and they'd ask them, hey, what do you think about the dam? And they were like, oh my God, the dam, if it bursts, we're going to be completely washed away, we're going to lose all our children, all our houses, everything's going to be destroyed. The dam is a big problem. So they were concerned. Well, that's interesting. Okay, then they went to the second village a little closer up and asked them, hey, what do you think of the dam? And their reaction was, uh, yeah, uh, the dam is a, is a big concern. I mean, uh, you know, if it goes, it's, it's a big problem. Oh, interesting. Okay. So then they go to the village that lives directly under the dam and asked, hey, what do you think of the dam? And their reaction was that the dam... Why are you asking about that? What's, what's wrong with the dam? There's nothing wrong with the dam. The dam's fine. Everything's fine. So they were completely oblivious to the danger that, that people that live further away, had a little more perspective on it perhaps, uh, were very concerned about. And this is kind of the story of, of human beings when they're in the middle of a civilization and in the middle sometimes of a crisis. And we've, we've seen this before. This, you know, this is an old story. You know, in the in the fifth century BC in, in ancient Greece, you know, Plato was was lamenting in his poems, you know, everything's been deforested. He, he he likened it to the to skeletons. He was saying that, you know, all the richer and softer parts have fallen away and only the skeletons remain. 
You know, he would go on to say, you know, only the bees could live there. You know, he saw a tremendous deforestation. Why? Because they had an energy crisis. Everyone needed wood. In fact, by the 4th century BC, it really got uh, intense because it, they then would outlaw anyone, you know, burning or chopping down an olive tree because their olive oil was so valuable, it was a death sentence. And you certainly couldn't chop down olive trees for charcoal. So the ancient Greeks went through this tremendous crisis and, and denuded their entire, most of their islands and began importing timber. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of polluting our world goes way back, you know, and, and, and civilizations, uh, everyone that we've known of in history um, has met their ultimate crisis and collapsed. And we can take a lesson from all of this because, uh, you know, let's look at the Roman Empire, for example. That's a story. You know, many historians will give you many examples of, of what led to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, of course. Um, I would submit that, really, it was precipitated by an energy crisis. You know, um, just like the Greek Empire, when the Roman Empire developed, they needed a lot of wood. You know, everything required wood and, and charcoal. You know how you, you make charcoal? You just dig a pit and you throw a bunch of wood in it and you set it on fire. And then you cover it with dirt and you let it kind of sit in that smoldering, in that anaerobic condition where there's really no oxygen. And it has this, it, it creates a pyrolization and it kind of concentrates the carbon content. And so, of course, when you dig it up and then transport it, instead of big wood crackling fires, you could have braziers that burned, you know, charcoal, and it was uh, one of the fuels that they would use. But this required an enormous amount of wood. And by the first century uh, BC, uh, this was a big crisis on the Italian peninsula. I mean, they, they literally deforested most of Italy. And uh, there, uh, for example, the, the great uh, architect in the first century, um, Vitruvius, he wrote extensively about how to incorporate solar architecture that the Greeks had started and then the Romans uh, really developed. I mean, uh, Vitruvius understood that um, the Roman Empire was in many different climates. And uh, if you're in North Africa and it's really hot, Vesuvius, Vitruvius rather would mention you, you keep the northern part of the house open and that protected you from the heat of the day. Uh, if you were in a more temperate climate, if it was in a colder environment, you would have the north end sealed and the east and west as well with maybe small windows, and the, the southern portico would be exposed so that the low-hanging sun in the, in the winter sky could have direct access into the house. And, and, and Vitruvius did great things. He, he innovated um, pits under the dining room for the uh, plutocracy and where they would uh, put in a bunch of broken shards of pottery and, and cover it with sand. And so when the, when the rays of the sun during the winter would come in through the portico, it would heat up this, this thermal mass. And so when you were having your supper, you had these wonderful warm floors, you know, just amazing architecture. But Vitruvius wrote a great deal about this, uh, how to prepare for using less wood, using solar energy to, to, uh, to heat your villas or, or yet other buildings, you know, in their, uh, in their hypocosts, where they would, they would build um, bricks with holes in them and you put them together and it made a ducting. So they'd have little furnaces and they would burn wood and it would put hot air, would circulate through the walls and the floors. You know, wonderful. But, you know, it, it took a lot of wood. 
So Rome was in trouble. By the time you get to the first century BC, uh, they were bringing in lumber from as far as the Caucasus. You know, it's like a thousand miles over land. Well, you know, Rome was a military empire, and this is the Iron Age now, so you needed a lot of wood to make iron. So on top of just heating and, and that sort of thing, really it was the industrial consumption of the Roman Empire that really fueled their need for wood, and they went to great lengths uh, to get it. So sound familiar? So when the Romans, you know, when they came, when they brought wood over land for, you know, for a thousand miles, these carts full of wood and charcoal that they would make on site and so forth were very vulnerable from a military tactical standpoint. Because here you have this long column and then you could be flanked. You could be attacked from the sides and you didn't have many soldiers available to rally. So there was a lot of disruption. So by the first century and into the second century now of the Roman Empire um, in the Common Era, they really had trouble. And so a whole fleet of, uh, of, of timber-ferrying boats was built, a timber fleet, a lumber fleet. And they'd go to France as far away as Spain, North Africa, to bring in vital lumber uh, into Rome and the surrounding uh, essential ports. So this was a tremendous crisis and very expensive. You know, big fleets of boats take a lot of wood. So now you have this positive feedback, this loop where wood is becoming more and more important and vital to maintain the military, not only in weaponry, but also in, in fuel. So what we're seeing in the Roman Empire then, what was the response? Well, the emperors started taxing more. They, by taxing their productive citizens, that's where the money was, um, they were able to raise more money. But they would devalue the currencies. They would do all of these techniques that really caused a capital flight. That most, by the 3rd and into the 4th century, this got so bad that many of the uh, aristocracy, or the plutocracy, I suppose we should say, uh, moved to their villas in the countryside. And so the uh, the work of Vitruvius in in you know in pointing out how to how to build these beautiful warming architectures um, were just uh, very useful in because of the energy crisis. And so all of this kind of pressure and, and of course you know migration from the Asian steppe it pushed uh, to into Eastern Europe and that displaced populations into Western Europe. And by the 4th century, that caused a lot of, of uh, pressure. The Gauls came down and, and sacked Rome. And we see the total disintegration of the Roman Empire by that time. And I, I believe it's really a domino effect from a basic notion of an energy crisis. Now, today we suffer that same fate or that same prognosis. Will it be the same fate? Well, time will tell. Unfortunately, we're having that kind of village under the dam syndrome, and we tend to ignore these enormous toxic time bombs that we are laying for ourselves in the air that you breathe, the food that you eat, and the water that you drink. Something vital to all of us. So these toxic time bombs, for example, the oceans, the water, the oceans are vital. We have to, we live off of the oceans. 70% of all protein of humans comes from the ocean. If the oceans die, we die. The future generations die. Now, we're reaching a tipping point. 
since 1950, only 60 years ago, 66 years ago, we have now put so much plastic garbage into the oceans that the mass of the plastic debris and these micro little particles, the mass of plastic equals the mass of the fish left in the oceans, which have already been, our fisheries have been depleted 90% worldwide. So the idea that an equal mass of fish is equated by a mass of plastic put all together is frightening and not good for half a century. What's the next 50 years going to bring? And with the oceans and this plastic issue, you know, it, it's not just the mass of the plastic that's out there. It's the how it's out there. It's the surface area. You know, when plastic breaks up, it, it doesn't break down. All you're doing is breaking it into, into smaller and smaller pieces, doubling the surface area each time. So it's a time bomb. It's, it's got an inertia. It's building. And it's going to choke out the, the phytoplankton, the algae in the oceans that are the base of the food chain. Moreover, small fish are going to feed on this algae, which isn't algae, it's plastic, which by their nature have an affinity to other toxins that may be released into the water. So they're actually toxic amplifiers. They're toxic concentrators. And when they enter our food chain, this is bad news. Then we have the toxic time bomb, of course, of the atmosphere. We're putting in, you know, the, the chemistry of the atmosphere is not dictated by the two major gases of nitrogen and oxygen so much, even though oxygen is very reactive, but it has to be constantly renewed because of that. It's the trace chemicals, the trace gases. This is really what drives the nature of the chemistry in the atmosphere. Now, we're loading it. We're loading it up with partially consumed hydrocarbons, nitrates, nitrites, ozone, volatile organic compounds, particulates. The list is long. And if you look at coal, of course, what we have there is among all of those is the release of a lot of mercury and radiation, of all things. You know, there's a lot of radioactive material, but it's so dispersed in nature that it's not an issue. But when you, when you cut off the top of a mountain and then burn it all, it concentrates. And a lot of this radiation is released. It's enormous, the scope of our pollution. Now, between the atmosphere and the oceans, this hydrosphere, we are creating such a toxic time bomb that the atmosphere is, is gaining the ability to not lose energy. Or said another way, it's gaining energy. And because of the greenhouse gases, if we overload the atmosphere and oceans with energy, what's going to happen? Well, it has to express. And this is climate change. This is severe climate. You know, are we going to have two climates now? You know, drought and floods? Well, this is an extreme danger to the sustainability of our civilization. And let's face it, we have an energy crisis.